evidence and answers. If you've been listening to Evidence and Answers, you're familiar with the classic arguments for the existence of God, such as the argument from first cause, the design, and moral argument. However, there are more arguments for the existence of God. Did you know that sorrow and suffering also provide a compelling case for the existence of God? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat and his guest, Dr. Doug Groteis, started an interesting discussion regarding Christian apologetics. Today they will conclude this interview and be discussing the evidence from sorrow and suffering, and will explore more evidences for the existence of God. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you'll be able to look up Christian apologetics, so you can download it or just listen online. Now, on to the conclusion. What is consciousness? Well, it's not the same as any material state. You can't reduce your perception of red or the taste of honey to anything merely chemical, merely material. There's the subjective element of it, and the subjective cannot be ultimately explained merely by what's going on in your brain or what's going on in some other part of your body. So this is an argument that there is something distinct from the body called the mind, an immaterial substance. And if the universe contains an immaterial substance, our consciousness, then we have to try to explain how it got here. And the theistic explanation is far better than any kind of materialistic explanation, because if you're a theist, you believe that God is the infinite personal spirit and that he's created human beings in his image and likeness, and they have a finite personal spirit attached to their bodies. So you explain consciousness on the basis of the ultimate being who himself has consciousness and who can create consciousness in his creatures along with giving them a body. Now, the materialist has to say, that consciousness somehow came about through an unguided, undirected, purely material process. And that is a very weak read to lean on. They try, they try hard. There are various ways of trying to account for consciousness without God as the ultimate consciousness. But I think they finally end up failing in one way or the other. So that's the consciousness part of it. Of course, I'm going very quickly. The book is a lot more detailed. But then there's also an element of consciousness called cognition, and that is our reasoning ability. So the Christian account of the universe is that in the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, and all things are made through Him, and that human beings are made as rational beings. We're made by the ultimately rational, all-knowing being, God. And part of being made in the image and likeness of God is being able to reason, to engage in inference. You know, if P, then Q, P, therefore Q, simple things like that. Or much more complicated patterns of argument or mathematics or whatever it may be. Now, this all makes sense given a theistic worldview because we were given our reason by a reasonable God and we were placed in a universe that is somewhat knowable because it is created and sustained by God, by the Logos. But on a materialistic view, you have all kinds of problems to deal with. For instance, you basically have the ability to reason coming out of a non-rational environment of merely material causes, material causes and effects, uh, where one thing happens after the other, 
But when you say, I believe A on the basis of B, you're talking about reasoning, and reasoning is beyond just physical causation. And this is a point that C.S. Lewis makes very well in his book, Miracles. But on a theistic worldview, the fact that we can reason to conclusions makes sense, because there's much more to reality than just material causes. There is a mind, we have minds that are given the ability to reason by God, and we can reason somewhat successfully. It's all based on the design plan of God. And if we're comparing this view with atheism, atheism can appeal to no design plan whatsoever. Uh, consciousness and cognition are latecomers in the universe. You know, the naturalist story is basically in the beginning were the particles for no reason, and then 15 billion years later, here we are. Whereas the Christian story is that in the beginning was God, and God created the universe. He gave it its structure, its intelligibility, its meaning, and he created us in his image to know the world, to know him, to know each other. And that is a much more philosophically satisfying understanding of really everything, but in this case, of consciousness and cognition. And of course, the argument is in the details, but I'm trying to give you the broad picture here, the broad strokes of it. Yes. Now, Doug, how do you answer, you know, the skeptic that says, well, we can control the thinking of the brain through electronic, you know, stimulation. We can, mm -hmm. this part of the brain controls actually the spirituality and the religious thinking of the brain. This part controls the attitudes. This part controls mm -hmm. the emotions. And we can stimulate these with electronic stimulators. Therefore, mind is just yeah. uh, chemical reactions going on in the brain. Right. I address that in the book. It's one thing to correlate a mental state with a physical state. It's another thing to identify them as being the same thing. So let's say I'm having various experiences and you see everything that's going on in my brain, everything. And I'm having the thought of a unicorn. Even if you could chart and observe everything, everything electrical, everything chemical, everything visual, you would never see a unicorn because that unicorn is in my consciousness, it's in my mind. So you might even stimulate a part of my brain that makes me think of a unicorn, but that doesn't mean that my consciousness is identical to my brain. So there's still a difference, there's still a dualism there. So the Christian view is not Platonism, it doesn't say spirit and matter are, are utterly opposite and spirit is better than matter and there's no interaction between spirit and matter. What it's saying is that we are beings who have a mind and a body, and God designed the mind and the body to work together. However, you cannot reduce the mind to merely the physical. So Scripture teaches that after we die, if we're Christians, we are with the Lord, even though our bodies have stopped working, we'll be truly with the Lord. And that was great comfort to me when I lost my first wife four years ago. But even greater comfort, I think, is that we will be resurrected in immortal bodies. That's the promise of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. It's the promise of 1 Corinthians 15 also. So what you're saying uh, is often brought up, but I think if you just make that distinction that correlation is not the same thing as identity, and then you also add other arguments. For example, there's pretty good evidence that people have clinically died, some people have clinically died and left their bodies and have observed things out of their bodies and then they come back into their bodies and give reports about what they could not have known otherwise. You know, they could not have known unless they had left their bodies and observed things. These are called near-death experiences. And 
I wrote a book about this many years ago called Deceived by the Light, but I added some material in the second edition of Christian Apologetics that really makes apologetic use of this. And people like J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas have looked at these cases. And I think that also gives some pretty strong evidence that there is a mind or a soul apart from the body. But ultimately, in the Christian view of things, the restored world that Christ has promised us is one in which we will be in, his followers will be in resurrected bodies. But still, we're not just bodies. We're not reducible to the material states. You also give a chapter in that book. Some may not be familiar with Pascal's arguments here, but you give one on Pascal's anthropological argument. Right. And you've done a lot of work on Pascal, I can mm-hmm. see. Explain to us Pascal's anthropological argument and why that one's a, another powerful right. argument for an intelligent creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's an argument I've been thinking about for many years. And as you said, I've been writing a lot about Pascal. I have a book out called On Pascal, which I'm now updating uh, for InterVarsity. But what Pascal does is look at the human condition. Who are we as human beings? And he finds evidence of greatness and also evidence of misery or even depravity. And he asks the question, what could account for people who can reason so wonderfully and can create beautiful objects of culture and show moral heroism? At the same time, they can use those abilities for evil. What is it about human beings? And what he says is that the Christian view explains us much better than any other view, because the Christian story says that all human beings are unique in the universe. We bear the image uh, and likeness of God, so we're really different from any other creatures on earth, but we're also fallen. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden in Genesis 3. So there's something wrong with us that we're great. He says that we're like deposed kings. So a king who's deposed will still have the marks of royalty. Mm. And he says that human beings, even though we are fallen and we are terribly marred by sin, we still evidence greatness in the world. So I have this chapter called Deposed Royalty where I lay that out. And what Pascal says is that no other worldview can account for our greatness as well as our misery and then also give us hope for redemption and meaning in Christ. He says that non-Christian worldviews typically either exalt us to the level of gods and deny our sinfulness, or debase us to the level of mere animals or worse and don't realize our greatness. And he says that Christianity uniquely understands our created nobility and also our fallen depravity, and doesn't just account for them, but gives us a way of renewal and restoration through Christ, the God-man. So I I have a chapter on that, and I I find that argument to be very compelling because it's a kind of one-stage argument. You're saying, let's look at the human situation, and that's pertinent to everyone. Everybody who's a human, I think, should want to know who they are and how they can explain themselves to themselves and explain others, and then say, well, there's a worldview, Christianity, that better accounts for who we are than other worldviews, atheism or pantheism or whatever it is. So on that kind of an argument, you present a distinctive Christian perspective, that is creation and fall, and you bring it to bear on the human situation. Whereas with natural theology, which I think is terrific, I mean, I've got 200 pages of it in the book or more, you say, well, there is a designer or a creator or a moral lawgiver, and then we go from there 
into some of the distinctively Christian doctrines, like created in the image of God or fallen. And this argument says, let's look at the whole Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption, so to speak, and see if it is the best explanation for who human beings are. So when I do a apologetics lecture on a college campus or somewhere else, I often use that argument because I think it's quite fascinating and quite compelling. But there are plenty of other arguments to use as well. Yeah, and I think that's a great chapter that every psychologist and psychiatrist uh, mm-hmm. ought to read, or an anthropologist as, as well. It really helps explain human nature and mm-hmm. how the Christian worldview gives the best explanation for really the paradox right. we see in human right. nature. Yeah, Pascal wants to say that we are enigmas to ourselves unless we listen to the voice of God. And one thing about Pascal, unlike many philosophers, he was a tremendous writer, his command of metaphors and similes and parables and so on is just unmatched. So when you read Pascal, you not only get strong apologetic arguments, you get a very winsome, uh, very compelling style as well. So whenever I write about Pascal, I try to quote him as much as possible because you can't really paraphrase him without uh, doing violence to him, basically. Yes. Now you have a chapter that I think might be unique to your book. I haven't seen it uh, in any other book, but you give a defense of the church. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people walk away from Christianity yeah. because of their experience in the church. You give a th- right. you know, defense of the church. So how do we present mm-hmm. a defense of the church? Right. Yeah, that was the first chapter that I wanted to add when I realized I wanted to do a second edition, because I realized that most apologetics books, especially by Protestants, don't have much to say about the church. But Jesus came to establish his church on earth. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I go from the identity of Jesus, I give reasons to believe that Christ is who he said he was, Lord and Savior, and he said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So if he is really the crucified and resurrected Lord, then you should be a part of his program on earth. So what I do is I give a apologetic for the church, being involved with the church, a biblical assembly of believers that hold to sound doctrine. And then I give an apologetic from the church, you might say, that as we radically love each other and worship the Lord and do good works, we become attractive to the watching world. The chapter has those two elements. There's an apologetic for the church and then the church as an apologetic to the world. And I think it's important because there's so many people who will say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I don't need organized religion because they want to create or cobble together a spirituality without any received authority or tradition. And really, that's pretty arrogant, because you wouldn't say that about anything else. You wouldn't say, well, I'm just going to teach myself to be a world-class swimmer. I don't need anybody to help me. Or I'm going to teach myself how to be an electrician. I don't need to be apprenticed into it. I mean, that could kill you off pretty quickly. But when it comes (laughs) to spirituality, a lot of people say, well, I don't have to be part of an organization. I don't need any authoritative scripture. I'll just kind of feel my way as I go. But if you can make a a strong case for Jesus Christ as the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the one who rose from the dead, then his word is true and his word is compelling. And he authorizes the church. So if we come to him, we have to come to his church as well. And I haven't found too many apologetics books that deal with that. And I was, that was the first chapter I thought that I needed to add because I had taught the book for many years at Denver Seminary and some other places. And I thought, you know, th- there's really something missing here. So I wanted to fill that in. 
Yeah, you know, and when you share Christ with unbelievers, a lot of times their visit to the church is that final case. You know, they kind of say, well, it's Mm -hmm. reasonable. All right, it makes Mm -hmm. sense. You've answered a lot of my questions, but, I mean, is this thing for real? You know, let me experience this thing. And church is where we bring them, and often it's there Mm -hmm. if they experience, you know, genuine love and people not perfect, but trying to obey Christ. Right. That that's kind of the final case, right there when they experience it, and then they're mm-hmm. they're kind of ready, isn't that? You, it can that? be. You know, Jesus said, "By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another." So, if we are truly loving each other and loving the Lord, and someone who's not yet a Christian joins us, and they see that love, and they also experience something of the presence of God in the worship, then that could certainly be the the factor that brings them in by the grace of God. And of course, sometimes people have bad experiences with the church. And when that happens, we need to explain that the church is is made up of sinners who continue to struggle with the flesh and so on. And even the early church had all kinds of problems. You see what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. I mean, they were having some major problems and a lot of sin involved there. But Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The church is called the body of Christ, the temple of God, the household of God, the family of God. All these beautiful metaphors of the unity and the goodness we have through Christ as his followers. Yes. Well, you know, the last one I'm going to ask you about, I mean, you've got uh, 30, 40 chapters in this book. So we're just, yeah. uh, you know, for those of you listening, we're just briefly covering some of the unique chapters here in this marvelous book here. But maybe the last one. Uh, you write lament as an apologetics for the Christian faith. How is lament an apologetic for the Christian faith? Right. Well, I have a long chapter on what's called the problem of evil, which is a separate chapter, and that is how can we rationally believe in a God who is all good and all powerful when there's so much evil in the world? And I have a lot to say about that. I think Christianity gives the best account of God, good, and evil of any other of any worldview out there. But there's another side to this, and that is that Christianity gives us the wisdom and the strength to suffer well when we have to suffer. So one key element of suffering well is learning to lament without lapsing into despair. And I've learned a lot about this through my own struggles over the years, and especially losing my first wife, Rebecca, to dementia. And I wrote a book about that called Walking Through Twilight. But my basic point is that Christianity is involved with the facts of of suffering, that Christ was the suffering servant, and he suffered and died for us on the cross to atone for our sin. And he knew the worst of all suffering. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And he was quoting, actually, a psalm of lament, Psalm 22. Maybe 60 of the psalms are psalms of lament. So lament is a cry of the heart before God over distress. It may be fear, there may be anger, maybe disappointment, all those things roll together. But Scripture gives us permission to lament. It gives us permission to cry out to God and say, Lord, how long will it be? When will you come through? I don't know if I can make it. Help, you know, and I'm not happy in this situation. So lament is a, a type of literature. As I said, there are about 60 Psalms of lament. We have the Book of, of Lamentations, Christ Lamented on the Cross, and it's also a way of creatively dealing with suffering. I think sometimes Christians think that to be faithful, they have to always be happy. Or to be faithful, they have to always see the good side of everything. 
But that's not really true. The world has fallen. The world is very fallen. There's a lot of evil, frustration, stress, difficulty. And one way that faith expresses itself is through lament. And Christianity uh, worships a suffering Savior who also rose again from the dead. So that means that suffering need not be meaningless, that the suffering of a Christian has some redemptive purpose, even if we don't know what it is. And the reason we believe that is that the worst suffering that ever occurred was experienced by Christ, and it was overcome, ultimately, through his death and resurrection. So we have a way to suffer well. No one wants to learn how to do it, obviously, but we all will suffer in one way or the other, and the way of lamenting is really the best, the best way to suffer in a wounded world. Yes, because for the atheist, I mean, really, our suffering is ultimately meaningless, because life is ultimately meaningless. We're just products of chance, you know, with yeah. no intended meaning here. So for our suffering, really, there's no meaning or hope behind that, yeah. isn't it? Well, if, if you're an atheist, that's true. Or let's say you're a Buddhist. Uh, the first noble truth of Buddhism is life is suffering. And the only thing you can do is try to escape this world by attaining nirvana. There's really no hope for this world. You have to just get out of it. And that's where Christianity says, yes, there is a lot of suffering, but the world is originally good. God created the world and said, it is very good. It is originally and constitutionally good, but it's been affected by sin. But God came to earth in the person of Christ as a bona fide human being, to redeem us, and the ultimate state of redemption is the new heavens and the new earth. I used to uh, comfort my first wife, Rebecca, a lot. I would read Revelation 21, 22 to her, 1 Corinthians 15, and say, you know, this is our destiny, and it's not just a happy thought to get us through. It's real. My first wife and I worked very hard to have a rational, compelling worldview, and that really helped us through her struggle and as she faced death. Yes, First Thessalonians Chapter 4 says that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so I think, as you stated in that chapter, Christianity really is the only worldview that gives a rational reason for evil Mm -hmm. and suffering in the world and really the only one that can offer any kind of message of of meaningful Mm -hmm. hope in the midst of suffering. Well, I think so. And, you know, it is a worldview that gives meaning to suffering, but it's also a God who is with us through the suffering, through the Holy Spirit, guiding us, directing us, consoling us, or even, uh, I know apologetics was so important to me because there were times when I didn't feel God's presence or goodness at all, but I knew He was there because I had been uh, teaching and preaching and talking to people for all these years and experiencing God in various ways for all these years. And if I'm going through a seemingly hellish situation, I don't let my emotions, uh, my feelings dictate what I think is real. So yeah, I'm really suffering, and this is terrible. And I might even feel forsaken by God, but I know that I'm not, because Christianity is true. Scripture is true. I know God is with me, even though this is a terrible situation I'm now in. I know somehow He's with me, and somehow good will come out of it, even though right now it doesn't feel good at all. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Doug Groteis, professor of philosophy and apologetics at Denver Seminary author of numerous books. We have been talking about his book here, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for the Christian Faith. This is a textbook that is used by many schools now across the country. It's a very comprehensive book, I think over close to 800 pages. 
and uh, it covers every facet of apologetics at, that uh, you would want to cover here. Now, Doug, if people want to get more information on you and the work that you do and read some of your articles, where can they go to get more information? Well, I have a webpage, which is simply called DouglasGrotheis.com. And if you're interested in the book, you could get it on Amazon or you could get it directly from InterVarsity Press on their website. That's great. So you've been listening to our interview with Doug Grotheis. You're going to want to go to his website and get a copy of several of his books there. So, Doug, thanks for being a guest with us here okay. on Evidence and Answers. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So please share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. 